You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series on 1 Samuel, presented by Steve Coleman, elder and member of New Hope Chapel's teaching team. Morning, good to see you. Um, it's, uh, we are at, at a point in the book of Samuel where we sort of come to the climax of Act 1. Samuel has a number of things that happen in it. In these first seven chapters, we have this whole issue of God uh, trying to communicate to his people what being set apart means, what being sanctified means, what being holy means. And uh, that's our series. I think we'll find the same theme echoed as we go on, but we're going to have Saul anointed king and his kingship. Then we're going to have David anointed king. And that'll carry us into 2 Samuel, which we're not going to get to all of that this time around on the series, but we'll get uh, into Saul a little bit. Uh, So Israel's learning the lesson of God being holy. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel 7. First Samuel 7, verse 2. It's a great verse, exciting one. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. It would be great if the book of 1 Samuel started with this verse, and, and this is where we were going. Uh, this verse occurs here. There's a backstory behind it. Chapters 1 through uh, 5 that we've covered so far, uh, chapter 6 and 7 right now, uh, that sets the stage for this verse and what follows it. So this is sort of like a movie. When you begin it, you you get this scene that captivates you, and then you get the flashbacks that bring you up to that that point. So we'll take a look at that briefly. Uh, This book of 1 Samuel picks up after the book of Judges, which was that time period that was after Joshua uh, brought the people into the land and conquered it. We had the book of Judges, and now we have uh, 1 Samuel. Samuel is oftentimes considered the last judge of Israel. And then we move into the, the line of kings. What the context is that we find the book of Samuel is, Israel is in a state of corruption. And the corruption goes all the way, or begins, with the priests that are operating. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And so in chapters 1 and two and three were introduced both to Hophni and Phinehas and to Samuel, who um, there are pictures of him as a young boy hearing the call, and then you get pictures of this uh, steel-gray bearded guy or white. There's nothing in between, no picture of Samuel that anybody's tried to make when he's 35 or 40, but he, he was that age at some point. And then Hophni and Phinehas. No good pictures of them except the Brick Testament. Uh, so there they are. And what we learned is that uh, the book of Samuel portrays them as sort of being these terrific pictures, these illustrations for us of what holiness, what being set apart looks like, and what the opposite of that looks like. Because Hophni and Phinehas were about as bad as bad could be. And so we got the message clearly. Samuel, good. Good illustration, follow Samuel. Hophni and Phinehas, that's what you want to stay away from. Miles away. (laughs) 
So uh, God was preparing Samuel behind the scenes in the context of this corruption. Now, Israel, because they weren't doing the right things, weren't following God, uh, they got into trouble. And they got into a battle with the Philistines, lost 4,000, and were defeated soundly. Justin covered this last week. And so they had a great idea in their minds. We're going to take the Ark of the Covenant and take that with us into battle because, hey, God's presence, nothing better than that. And we have a memory of that kind of thing happening before. The Ark of the Covenant was used when God directed it to head the children of Israel as they marched around Jericho before it fell. So they grab the Ark, Hophni and Phinehas come along to bring that priestly heir to the thing, and they go into battle. And um, dire consequences. And that's what Justin began to list for us last week. So we have this sort of downward slide that we're going to see with what happens. They go into battle. The battle was lost. Not only that, the ark was captured. Three, 30,000 soldiers of Israel die in this battle. The judgment doesn't stop there. Hophni and Phinehas are killed as part of the judgment that was listed. Their father, Eli, who was anxious about the ark being in the battle and waiting anxiously for news from the battle, when he hears that the ark was captured, he dies, falls over, and his chair breaks his neck. Not only that, but Phinehas's wife, who's expecting, goes into premature labor, and uh, things don't go well, and she begins to die. And she names this child that's born, this boy that's born, she names him Ichabod, which you might remember from fanciful stories. But Ichabod means no glory. And she, she named him that, she said, because the glory of Israel has departed. And it doesn't end with Israel. And Justin started to talk about that too. The ark was taken to um, a couple of, of cities. There, uh, Gath was one and Ash, Ashtalon. Uh, Akron, thank you. Uh, no, Ekron was, was later, but there was the first one. A-S-H something. But um, what happened in those cities is that they placed the ark in the temple with Dagon, which was their god, their sort of supreme god. He was the, 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 the god of everything, the, the thundering god, if you will, sort of the storm god. And this god had children, much like in Greek mythology, you have Zeus, and then you have all the lesser gods underneath. Well, two of the lesser gods uh, that we're going to hear about later on is Baal. He's one. Uh, actually, an Old Testament professor in Semitic studies, um, says, in the way of pronunciation there, it should be Baal. Um, but I, and I look up the Hebrew pronunciations of these, but, you know, I, I'm not going to get through a message doing that consistently. So I'm going to stick with the Americanized version of Baal. And then Ashtaroth, which is supposed to be his consort. She is the goddess of fertility for the earth and for the crops. Uh, Baal takes on the same powers as Dagon and is the storm god. Anyway, they put it in with Dagon, I suppose uh, incorporating this very powerful deity in with their worship. 
hey, we've got the God of Israel now, so we're gonna, he's one of the gods. And uh, what they find is night after night, they, they put it in there, and the next morning, Dagon has been fallen over. And at one, at one point, both, his hands of, both hands of the idol break off and the head breaks off. And uh, so they decide there's bad karma going. But not only that, they get physical troubles, tumors of some kind. There's also a lot of death spreads through the city. The Bible calls it destruction, and there's some relationship with rats. So whether they had a plague of rats with all the accompanying diseases, I don't know. But uh, they had big problems. Uh, And you, you know what the Bible quotes the Philistines as saying? The hand of the Lord is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. So they're saying, we're taking a beating and our God is taking a beating. Here, interesting insight for them. So they say, we've got to get rid of this thing, first of all. We've got to find a way to lift the problems that we have. We think maybe this is being caused by Israel's God, but maybe it's just a big coincidence. So they call their diviners. And in chapter 6, a couple of pages back probably in your Bible, starting at verse 7, their diviners tell them, Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take the calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and the chest beside it, uh, put the gold objects you are sending back to them as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know it was not his hand that struck us, but it happened to us by chance. Now, it sounds like an interesting test, but they, it, it's really a clever test because for three separate reasons, there's no way that cart should have gone to Beth Shemesh. First of all, they talk about yoking these oxen. I love the Internet. Uh, Dr. Drew Conroy is a professor of applied animal sciences in New Hampshire and knows all about the ancient history of yokes, which they began in this Middle Eastern, um, Far Eastern European, Far Western Asian area. And he says, the early versions of the yoke were crude, not carved to fit individual animal or designed with the animal's comfort in mind. That's in his paper, Ock yokes, culture, comfort, and animal welfare. Other, so here, here these animals are probably not having, who've never been yoked before, are getting this thing stuck on them that may not be the most comfortable thing. Another expert, training oxen requires taking two separate animals, which have previously been their own masters, making them a team that will work for another master. Behaving this way is contrary to nature. And another one. When you begin training a pair of oxen to work, bear in mind that it's going to be a gradual process. When you first hook the oxen to a load, the whole concept of pulling is new. There's long instructions about how you train your oxen. You see, I don't know anything about this stuff. I don't know anything about farms. In a a former church, we had two farmers, and they were always my resource for these kinds of questions, but... I don't know of anybody here 
that, that knows all that. But there's a, a real, it's a, it's a challenge. They're trainable. Animals are trainable to pull loads with a yoke. But it takes training. So you take two cows that have never known the yoke, and you put them in the yoke together, and you just let the cart go. It'd be a miracle if it got there. Well, to add to it, these cows just had calves. And so they took and they pinned up the calves, and they put the yoke on the, cow, the cows. They, they hitched them to this cart. So here are these cows whose natural instinct is to nurse their young, and they're being set, set loose. Uh, it, it says uh, in a few verses later, in verse 12 in chapter 6, Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. Beeline to Beth Shemesh. Cows shouldn't have done that. They should have been one trying to go one way, one another. They went together. I don't know if it's significant that they were lowing all the way, but I imagine they might be lowing because they didn't have their calves, which is an indication that, that wasn't, something was overcome. So God made it perfectly plain to the Philistines. It wasn't by chance, it was me, my heavy hand on you and your God. Went straight to Beth Shemesh. And they found Joshua, Joshua's field in Beth Shemesh. And the Israelites were ecstatic to get this um, ark back, and they put it on a big rock, offered sacrifices. But the troubles don't stop. Because after the day's events, some people go and look into the ark. They're curious. It's always been behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. Nobody's seen it except the high priest who goes in once a year. And so they look in it. And the, the Bible says that um, God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. Oh, that's a yoke, sorry. Bad PowerPoint management. Death in Beth Shemesh. Not sure about the exact number that died. There's, there's some manuscript uh, uh, differences between one manuscript and another, another, but there were a large number of people that died. So this is the downward slide. All of this, death in Beth Shemesh, because they had the idea, let's take the ark into battle because that's what we think we need to win. And Justin... Uh, tied all this together with the notion of sort of um, superstition in Christianity. And he had some, a great way of explaining that. I'm not going to duplicate his sermon at all. But then we come to our verse. And I think it's the next slide. Let's see. No, it's not. Because what happens is after the death of the people in Beth Shemesh, they say, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? And you say, ah, they're starting to get it. It's a holy God, a set-apart God. And so what they do, because of that, they say, some other town needs to take this, and they contact Kirath-Jerim. There are Levites there for sure. Maybe there weren't any at Beth Shemesh. I don't know. 
but they call God a holy God. In Hebrew, it's a word you know because we, we sing it in a few songs, kadosh. Holy, when you see holy, it's that Greek word kadosh, or it's a form of the word kadosh. And that means literally set apart. So when they take it up to Kirith-Jerim, to return to the story, they take it to Abinadab's house, and they get Eleazar, his son, and they consecrate him to guard the ark. Now, why I'm fitting this in here is because that word consecrate in our English Bibles is a form of the word kadosh. So we've got a holy God, and we need to put it somewhere where a set-apart person, a holy person, a person we've consecrated to guard the ark. Israel's getting the idea, the idea of holiness and the need for it. Well, in 7.1, they turn back to the Lord with all their heart. And the results of turning back to the Lord, it's way low here. Results of turning back to the Lord, and then we have things that are, are going to kind of turn things around and start heading up. And the first three things are, they turned back to the Lord and they inquired of Samuel, and Samuel said, well, what you need to do is put away your foreign gods, the Baals and the Asherahs. You need to serve the Lord only. And he called Israel together at Mizpah to, uh, to pray, to confess, to offer sacrifices to God. He said, I will intercede for you with God, and let's bring a change to this Israelite community. Let's bring a revival here. Let's bring new life to this, a new understanding of God's holiness, a new setting in order the lives of the Israelites. So he called them all there to worship, pray. It's interesting, he didn't take them to Shiloh, which is the location of the tabernacle, now minus the ark. He didn't take them to Kirith-Jerim, where the ark was. He brought them to Mizpah. I don't know if there's any special significance to Mizpah, but it's not where the tabernacle was, where they'd done worship before, where the old um, atmosphere of corruption was. He didn't take them to where the ark was, newly, because if one of their problems was thinking of the ark as sort of that good luck charm, or that there's something about that gold-covered box that made it the thing. It isn't. The significance is that the presence of God, of a holy God, resided between the cherubim there. He brought them to Mizpah so that all the distractions, all the things that had tripped them up in the past were not there. And they could focus on God alone. Well, the Philistines heard they were meeting at Mizpah, and they said, easy pickings, picked up their weapons and marched on Mizpah. And it it sort of reads like an action-adventure, because it says, um, when the Philistines, this is in chapter 17, starting in verse 7, when the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. No doubt. 
but they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord for us, that he may rescue us from the hands of the Philistines. And Samuel goes ahead and offers a sacrifice. And while he was offering that sacrifice, in verse 10 it says, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. So here's a sacrifice going on. They've been praying, they've been worshiping, and they can hear the Philistine army. It says, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before Israel. All right, a couple things to note here. God thundered a loud thunder. Well, first of all, that must have been pretty loud because a thunder is loud. And if it's a thundering, a loud thunder. Have you ever been in one of those uh, lightning storms or others where you just, you just want to crawl into a ball and put your hands over your ears? That's probably it. Created a disoriented Philistine group. God's done a number of things to help his people in battles. Why did he thunder a loud thunder this time? Because Dagon and Baal are the god of the storm. God's laying his heavy hand on the Philistines and on their gods once again. I am different. I am the Lord of lords, the king of kings. I'm not another god. So that's, a, that's kind of an interesting point for me, uh, that, that God, just like he did in, in Exodus, where a lot of those plagues matched up to the gods of the Egyptians. Well, he's done the same thing here with Baal. Now, after that, Samuel, it says, took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, the direction the Philistines came from. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Now, we don't usually name stones, but he set up a memorial, and we're familiar with that. You know, when I was a child, uh, my my parents entertained out-of-town guests frequently. And we lived in the Washington, D.C. area, and so they had a, a number of different sites in D.C. to see. Some were memorials and uh, other places. D.C. used to have a really nice wax museum. They like to take them there. At long since gone. But one of my favorites to go to when we all pile in the car and go to these places was, not, was a memorial, but not in D.C. at all. It's in suburb uh, across the river in Arlington, Virginia. And it's called the Marine Corps War Memorial. Most people know it as the Iwo Jima Memorial. But it's the Marine Corps War Memorial. It is set up, in particular, to honor, in the honor and memory of those in the United States Marine Corps who have given their lives to their country since 10 November 1775. And around the base are carved all of the significant wars that the United States Marine Corps has been involved in since that time. Uh, They chose this particular sculpture for the top uh, from a photograph that was made uh, of six servicemen 
erecting the flag on the top of Mount uh, Suribachi. Yeah, thank you. Good. Good. Thus ends the history lesson. Um, interestingly, I heard on the news, and quite apart from using this, the, uh, the man who photographed this died this week, took this photograph, Joel some, something or other. But um, this was a horrible battle, a bloody battle, and it was quite a victory. This picture became uh, very famous and uh, was used as the model, the idea for putting this up. But it's put up here to honor those men, but it's put up there as a memory device by the United States Marine Corps to remember what these people have done. And that's exactly what Samuel was doing. He was setting up the stone to say, this is so we remember what God did. There's another interesting wrinkle with this. They just keep coming in this chapter, these little wrinkles. If you, if you go, back, go back to 1 Samuel 4.1, way back in this battle that they lost 4,000 people and the battle they lost the ark in, they went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer. It's a town. A town named um, Stone. Stone of help. Uh, it's a town. But you know what? They're not at Ebenezer right now. They're just outside of Mizpah. I think I have a map. Yes, this is, uh, you can see the Dead Sea down here, Sea of Galilee. We're going to zoom into this area. I guess down here, about this area on the next slide. Okay, so we zoomed in, and here's Jerusalem, just to get you oriented. And up here is Shiloh. The Philistines are down in this area. Here's Ashdod, the first town the ark was in. Gath is down, down about here. It's not shown, and Ekron is here. And um, where the ark went, Beth Shemesh is about in this area. And uh, Kurith Jamir is about up in here. So they went to meet at Mizpah anyway. And uh, archaeologists don't know where uh, Ebenezer or, I can't remember the name of the other town that the, that the Philistines were in. They don't know where either of those towns were. They think they were up in this area, right up here where that circle is. In any event, here is Israel down here fighting, and Samuel sets up a stone and says, stone of help, this the Lord has helped us so far. But what he did was he named the stone, the name of the town, of their worst defeat. And said, here God is with us. It's here that God thundered. It's here that you honored God as holy. As a stone of remembrance. Quite a memorial. Uh, well, it goes on. After God thundered, they had this stone, they had this memory of the victory, but several other things happen. And it says, it says, so the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. So right here, no more invasions. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel originally were restored to Israel. So there's recaptured cities. 
And it also says there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Where did the Amorites come in here? Well, if you remember on the map, Philistines were down here on the, the far eastern edge of Israel. Then you had Israel. And if you go over here toward Babylon, that area, across the Jordan, over here in the, in the, uh, in the west, that's where the Amorites were. They sort of were next to Moab, and those two would fight all the time. So Israel, no more invasions from the Philistines, and they had peace with their other neighbor on the other side. Just thrown, thrown that in for, as, as a pat on the back by the Lord for, for this recognition. So they had peace with the Amorites. As disastrous as the Israel's decision to grab the ark and rush it into battle, their blessing after treating God as holy, or kadosh, was enormous. Well, that's a great story. What's in it for us? You know, for us to treat God as common or not set apart in our lives, that, that he sort of competes with other interests that we have in life, that is us treating God with contempt in the same way. Holiness is set-apartness. Samuel's guidance to Israel is a good place for us to start. Samuel told them, first of all, to return with all your heart. I think that's a really important point. The emphasis is not on returning with all what, that you do. The measure is our heart. We don't want to get that backwards. I've got, if Justin will play it for me, a, uh, get ready to play it for me, uh, I've got a, a clip of a, it's sort of a humorous, tongue-in-cheek uh, look at uh, worship songs gone wrong. It, I'm, we're cutting into the middle of it, but you'll get the idea as it, it goes. So let's run this clip. Okay, funny. Um, I identify with some of that, being a Christian a long time, sometimes you can drop into automatic mode. And as you sing songs, I've done this, sing songs, and it's like, am I really thinking about these words? Um, do I, am, you know, am, am I just going through the motions in some way? It's not what we do that, that shows, that, that is the primary thing God's looking for in us setting him apart. It's not going to church more often. It's not having more days you can sort of tick off the calendar and say, yeah, I read my Bible today. It's not what we do. It's our heart. How close is our heart to God? So return to the Lord with all your heart. Then he's told them to get rid of their their foreign gods, the Baals and the Asterisks. Well, we've got other gods ourselves to get rid of. We live in a fantastic time uh, in the U.S. history. Uh, We have living conditions and uh, food and all kinds of things that, you know, a third of the world would would, uh, really love to have if they could, at least a third of the world if not. We, We have everything we need and almost everything we want. And so we've got to take a look at things. And God's got to do this for us. It's not something that somebody can stand up and say, okay, don't do this and don't do that, but do this, and then then you're on track because it's about the heart. 
God's got to tell us what things in our lives compete with him. And we've got to um, get, do a serious evaluation of that. Third thing, commit yourself to the Lord. Now, the way I read this, okay, you, you do step two. You get things cleaned out. You clean out all the, those weeds. You, you say, you know what, yeah, I, I've got to get a looser hold on my car or on my 401k plan or even my job. You know, I, 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 I can't let that compete with God. I, I sometimes have that compete. I'm, I've just got God in focus. So you do that. Then what needs to happen is you've got to keep all that stuff away. Keep God separate. And that takes a long-term commitment. Uh, when I was in high school, I cleaned my room probably twice during that time. <laughs> you know, it was just a, a, about a foot deep in stuff. But a couple of times, for different reasons, I took about half a day and cleaned it all up. And I used to think, man, it would be great to live this way. This is so wonderful. And without even doing anything that I knew of, about three months later, it was about six inches deep and heading toward a foot deep again. Uh, I didn't have the commitment to keep it clean. And that's, what, that's the role of this one, I think. And then serve the Lord only. That's proactively, in your life, live for his glory. Paul writes, so whenever you eat, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. A book like Practicing the Presence of Christ by Brother Lawrence, it's an old, old book, small book, but it gets at that, how you bring God into every aspect of your life. It's a constant battle. It's horrifying to sort of realize, it's been like three days, and I'm not sure I've really prayed, talked to God, you know, it's horrifying, but it happens. It's a constant effort and constant work to keep doing it, to bring him into everything we do. You know, we've seen Israel, during a corrupt time, treat God with contempt, and they paid a heavy price for that. God, through Samuel, is teaching them what set-apartness means. There will be more failures and more successes in Israel's history. We're going to experience more failures and more successes as we work on this. But getting... Um, but the important thing is to get straight the idea that God alone is holy. Uh, God alone is Lord of all the earth. God alone loves us with an everlasting love. God alone can change us. God alone has our future in his hands. God alone brings life. God alone is worthy of our praise and worship. God alone is holy. God alone is kadosh. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel.
To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.